Hello, welcome to this Institute for Government event on how to open up the civil service to more external recruits. This is not a new subject. Uh, a government reform plan in 2012 talked about greater interchange of people and ideas between the civil service and other sectors. The Fulton Report in 1968 was, quote, convinced that both in the public interest and also for the health of the service itself, effective steps must be taken to ensure a very much larger and freer flow of men and women between the service and outside employments. Even uh, that foundational text, the Northcote Trevelyan Report, uh, records that, quote, it will occasionally be found necessary to fill posts with persons who have distinguished themselves elsewhere than in the civil service. Though, to be fair, uh, on Northcote Trevelyan, uh, that report does in the end favour internal recruitment over experience in other walks of life. Uh, it's found that the superior docility of young men renders it much easier to make valuable public servants of them than of those more advanced in life. Um, perhaps there are limits to the wisdom of that report. My name is Alex Thomas. Uh, I'm a programme director here at the Institute for Government. Uh, I'm very pleased to be chairing this discussion about opening up the civil service and improving external recruitment. It's something we've been spending some time over the last six months or so. Uh, and at the end of last year, we produced a report uh, arguing that the civil service needs more career routes, more points of entry and exit for those who've developed skills and experience outside the institution. That's uh, the prompt for our discussion today. And as you can see, we've got a fantastic panel to discuss all of this. Um, before I introduce them, it's the first call for questions. Uh, get thinking in the room uh, here, and for those tuning in remotely, use the Slido function uh, on your screens. Uh, and if you ask a question, if you can, do say uh, who you are and what organisation you're from. We're live tweeting from at IFG events, as we usually do, and the hashtag is uh, IFG Civil Service. So do follow and tweet along. Uh, so to the panel. Baroness Stewart, I've promised her that's the last time I'll call her Baroness Stewart. Uh, Geisler Stewart is the first, uh, first civil service commissioner and so responsible for uh, assuring the recruitment of civil servants, making sure they're recruited on merit, safeguarding an impartial civil service. Geisler is a crossbench peer, having been a Labour MP and minister and chair of vote leave in 2016. Catherine Braddock is the Group Head of Strategic Policy and advisor to the Chief Executive of Barclays. Until recently, she was a civil servant, including as Director General for Financial Services at the Treasury. Jonathan Simons is a partner at Public First, former senior civil servant with a particular focus in both of his careers on education policy. And Jordan Urban is a researcher here at the Institute, author of reports on civil service reform, manifesto tracking, foreign office, government communications, and who is the lead author of our opening up report. So Jordan, we're gonna kick off with you uh, to just give a few headlines from our research, particularly about why it matters uh, why does it matter the civil service gets better at bringing in external talent and what are our most important recommendations? Brilliant. Well, thanks, Alex, and thanks, everyone, for coming here and uh, to those watching online. So why is this problem important? Well, our research kind of threw up three main reasons. First is to increase the civil service's technical capability, so the types of skills and knowledge that some civil servants have is best acquired actually outside government, even though it's very important to have inside government. Um, kind of classic examples of that would be scientists, actually also actuaries as well. If you look at the, the government actuaries department, plenty of them were trained in the private sector before moving into government. That's kind of the, the traditional path for a high quality actuary. Um, for example, if you're working on like Whitehall and local government relations, it might make sense for you to have seen those relations from both sides of the coin and had a stint in local government as well. Um, that may be very useful and, and give you kind of useful knowledge and, and useful skills. Um, the second reason is to kind of decrease groupthink and increase the civil services as, as we call it cognitive diversity. So the civil service can be a bit groupthinky, to be honest. And if you look at the, the 2021 um, civil service people survey, shows that 55% of civil servants felt quote unquote safe to challenge um, the way things are done in their organisation. I don't know about you, I don't get the sense that's a particularly high number. Um, one interviewee that we talked to for this project um, talked about how the civil service prizes people who speak a script and that was kind of a recurring theme um, that feeds into this sense of groupthink. And we think that kind of bringing more people from outside who have different views, um, who have different professional experiences, different intellectual approaches, can kind of add a bit of, I guess, constructive crunch to the way that the civil service does things um, and kind of add different perspectives that can be valuable um, in different situations. And the third is a, a relatively basic one, which is uh, by kind of being less effective at recruiting from outside its borders than it should be, the civil service cuts itself off 
from uh, talented people in the wider labour market who would be excellent civil servants but find it very difficult to come into the civil service. Um, so what are our most important recommendations? Well, I've picked out three. There are plenty more and I'm sure we'll discuss them today. Um, the first is that there should be senior specialist roles. So in the civil service, as you get more senior, you often have to manage people and you often have to do a lot of what's kind of termed handling. Um, that is not useful for people whose main skill and main interest is either knowing or doing um, and doesn't allow them to progress up the civil service or gives them quite a hard cap. Um, there have been a couple of instances or a few instances in recent times of these kind of senior specialist roles existing, um, Tim, Lo Tim Loinig's role in the Treasury um, being one, but they tend to happen because of, of happenstance and coincidence rather than being an ingrained part of the model. Um, secondly, um, there's a problem with in, in kind of the civil services employer brand. Um, we had multiple people describe it to us during the course of interviews for this project as battered. Um, maybe that was partly because this was during the, the Johnson administration around the time that Jacob Rees-Mogg was, uh, was briefing the Daily Mail every week about how they were working from home. So maybe, maybe that kind of had something to do with it. But there is a sense that ministerial criticism has uh, diminished the attraction of the civil service. But I think just focusing on that lets the civil service off the hook. And actually, there's something really important here, which is that in a really tight kind of post-COVID labour market, it's normal for employers, particularly in the private sector, to really sell themselves to potential candidates. And I don't get the sense that that is something that the civil service does particularly well outside of the successful civil service fast stream, which does do that really well and is rewarded with, with in general, very high calibre people. So that's something that we identified as a problem in need of a solution. Um, and thirdly, uh, pay. It's just not competitive enough. Um, People don't go into the civil service for, for reasons of pay, that much is, is relatively clear, but it needs to be up to a certain hygiene standard. And, and after the falls in, in real terms pay that we've seen since 2010, it's 15 to 18% at each grade of the SCS. Um, the civil services pay offer simply isn't up to, to scratch to where it needs to be in order to attract the best candidates. There's plenty more in the report. I'm sure we'll get into that later, but that's sort of a, a brief pricey. Thanks, Jordan. Whistle stop tour. Um, <clears throat> uh, Giesler. We've got the luxury of researching this, thinking about it, talking about it. You're overseeing the system that actually has to do it. Um, uh, so do you agree with the diagnosis of the problem uh, and what, uh, from your perspective, is the civil service doing to address it? Yeah, and if, if you allow me to just sort of do in a 30 seconds advertisement on behalf of the Civil Service Commission, because I'm not sure everybody's very clear what we do. <laughs> Go and, for it. And essentially for ever since, uh, well, last year, Jacob Rees, uh, it was Jacob Rees-Mogg sort of sent out uh, a letter and said, external by default is now applicable to all SES grades from SES 1 to PermSex SES 4. Uh, what was remarkable about that is that since then, we haven't at the commission haven't had a single phone call from a department saying, and how does that affect our recruitment? Uh, which tells you when you mention about the relationship between ministers and civil servants and ministers criticising the civil service, there is, it is, these are always two-way relationships. There may be criticism, but as one of my children once said to me, just because I can hear does not mean I'm listening. <laughs> uh, so we're, we're trying to encourage that kind of listening. And we oversee as a commission, we chair all the PERMSEC and director general roles and about it's arguable how many, but at least more than half of the uh, director roles. And we are now looking at how we oversee more directly the uh, deputy directors, because I think porosity mm -hmm. and moving externally, it's actually the deputy director and director line, which is where you get the pipeline and, and feed it in. I think the minute you go to DG roles and permsec, it actually becomes very difficult to sort of move in. So, so that's what we, what we do. The, what I find remarkable, and, and you're quite right about the roles, uh, but we talk about open, fair, and based on marriage, which is your Northcote Trevelyan principles. Mm -hmm. And we tend to spend a bit too much time on the open and fair because that's easy to deal with and don't look at the merit sufficiently. And there I would make an observation that the, even to talk about the civil service as a whole is becoming problematic because the, the skills you require to, to ensure that the country is uses the best and the most talented people to support the political and democratic institutions is becoming more and more challenging and more diff and the, the, we talk about the, the the era of the generalist being over but still behave if it if it was still the the, the, the key skill so uh, the one thing which you're so right 
and, and I know it's a bit of a caricature what I'm about to say, but in the private sector, in a tight labor market, an employer will go out and say, I'm a great company. You have no idea what we can offer you. Would you like to work for us? And in the civil service, we still start with the assumption of the self-evident truth that we are wonderful. Uh, and would you like to prove to us that you're worthy to work for us? Now, there's nothing wrong with this in principle. However, I think we want to bring, so what does the first civil service, what the civil service commission do? So currently we're really encouraging every permsec when they are the vacancy holder, that they have a, a, sh a short video to go with the job and just say, look, this is what we're all about. They regard and explain much more. And I just want to sort of uh, relay one conversation I had with a very senior person who came out from, from and applied for, for, for a permanent position. And I said to them, I said, tell me, why, why are you prepared to work for what essentially is a tenth of what you're earning out there? And the response was very revealing because they said, I've realized after about 25 years that I have spent solving the same complex problem just for a string of different people. Whereas if I go into government, I can actually start solving and using my skills of problem solving for an ever-changing set of, of situations. Uh, at the, probably the biggest, you know, whether you want to be frivolous and call it the biggest train set you ever be allowed to play with, or whether you want to say the thing which matters most to the life of everybody on these, these, these islands. Uh, again, we're not making enough of, of, of that. And that's where we have to, whether it's senior roles, we need to be more precise in what it is we're looking for. And, the, and I finish with sort of a final observation that uh, as a regulator, there are principles uh, which apply and they're enshrined in recruitment principles which tell you what you have to do. But I actually want us to be an innovative regulator so that people try new things because I think you do need to reach out and, and, and change the way uh, we do recruitment. Uh, and we've got a Commissioner's Mark of Excellence, which was the first one last year, and we're doing it again, just to encourage that kind of outward looking. We invite people to come in, and we recognize that the biggest mistake we can make is to recruit people because they're not like us, and then reject them because they haven't become like us. And there's still a bit too much of that at the moment. Thank you, Gisela. One, I mean, uh, you talked about the, the promotion of the, the, the roles. Uh, one question that comes up in the report is the actual the sort of career routes for people coming from outside or, or actually people inside. I mean, have you got a perspective from the Commission's point of view on what, a, you know, what the different career routes look like and whether there are ways to open up new and different career routes? You see, I th my ideal is, is actually a continual interchange in, out, back, in again, out again. And it's interesting when you look at what currently done as secondments from the NHS is being done. So if you look, for example, at the Welsh government, where 50% of their budget is actually spent on health. So there is the, they cannot but engage with a, a professional sector. And I would want us to have by far more interchange with local authorities. Uh, because if, if, if levelling up is, is, is supposed to mean anything, and I speak as a former Birmingham MP, uh, our big cities, our big regions actually need to have a much higher skills level. And that's where you have this, 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 this curious situation that the civil service sort of slightly looks down on the equivalents in local authorities, but the local authorities pay them more than the civil servants mm -hmm. do. Uh, so there's always status and pay, but I think I want to move that up. I want us to have a much greater engagement with the dwarfed administrations. So increasingly, whenever we do interviewing panels, I encourage that you have a representative there. So the the, the porosity and the jobs have to move regions in and out. And we have to look, and I, I was interested in, in your example of, you know, the, the you know, people like, to, I don't like it sort of doing personal, but it's kind of positions of analysts and economists. Yeah. You know, analysts, I think we don't have a sufficient career path. Do we have sufficient established career paths for statisticians? I don't think we do. Uh, so they have to be very specific for roles and then allowed to go from one to the top and recognise it. Thank you, Gisela. Points there, no doubt, we'll pick up over the rest of the conversation, particularly about generalist specialists, about the wider public and public sector and local government, as well as the private sector, which often kind of captures this conversation a bit. But um, Catherine, uh, turning to you, tell us about your experience. And you've moved, moved out of the civil service to a big job in a 
corporate organisation. What's that mm -hmm. taught you over the last um, year or two about the benefits or the drawbacks of that interchange? Yeah, so um, I was at the Treasury for seven years and I came to the Treasury from the Bank of England. So I counted as an external hire, bringing experience of regulation into the work on financial services policy. And then I moved out into a commercial environment in the financial services sector. Um, while I was at the Treasury, we not only had um, Tim, as you referenced, who came in from outside to bring um, expertise uh, and analytical expertise. We have, it's a delight to see an erstwhile colleague in the room who also uh, joined the Treasury while I was there from the commercial environment at the senior level and brought considerable expertise. And my boss uh, had joined the Treasury from McKinsey, again, at a very, very senior level. So we did have people who came in and they brought specific sets of skills. And this goes exactly to Giesler's point, which is the civil service is not a homogenous uh, set of jobs. They are not all the same. And indeed, even under the, t you know, there's a specialist generalist um, split emerging this, in this conversation, but I think generalist is a term that's frequently misunderstood. Generalist does not mean amateur and it doesn't mean improvised. It, it is a set of skills that can be applied across policymaking um, in a range of areas, but even a generalist policymaker is not therefore deployable to every job in the civil service. There's an extraordinary diversity, and I think it's more useful to talk about specific skills that are required. Time I was at the Treasury. Um, was when the government was setting up the Department for International Trade, and there was a massive effort to recruit people from industry into DIT in order to um, bring expertise about how to make and build trade links, um, which was really important to the, to the sort of establishment and direction of that department. Also at the Treasury, we had a program to bring in experienced hires at the level below SCS, it was quite drawn out, but it was incredibly successful. In my function, we got some really, really talented people who brought expertise from other, uh, from other corporate environments, but critically from commercial environments who brought a maturity and a perspective that was a great asset to us in what is, continues to be a relatively small uh, department. When I arrived at Barclays, I found heaps of people who'd worked at the Treasury, as well as a number of people who'd worked um, as assistants for MPs. And that's because, in my experience, there is a relatively poor understanding in business about the business of government and how that operates. And so there is always going to be a very hot market for people who can explain that. To your point, Giesler, on porosity, I think actually the problem is in how you get people back in um, in theory, you would want a circulation, not a movement in one direction or another. Um, that's something that uh, we struggle with, and some of that is certainly to do with pay. I think there is a real challenge that um, to be able to compete for pay, to get people into the civil service or back into the civil service, you're essentially looking for people who have a financial cushion elsewhere. And that really has an effect on the social and economic diversity of the people who are populating um, our leading our, our government departments. Um, so I think that is an important point to consider. I think that kind of the circulation is really important. I think the main thing I would say um, where I most emphatically agree with Giza is the quality of the work in the civil service is its most powerful attraction. Um, the ability to do the most interesting work and to have an extraordinary impact is what makes those jobs such an incredible privilege. Certainly I felt my job uh, was a massive privilege and I think that will always be the thing that most powerfully draws people into government. Mm. Thanks, Catherine. We'll come back to lots of those points as well. But a strong theme about the civil service selling itself and uh, sort of being more assertive while uh, in, you know, uh, also being impartial. Jonathan, pay has already come up. Uh, Let's not be naive about the uh, context, uh, political, presentational. Um, I detect a, a bit more of an appetite for talking about pay flexibility and the balance mm. between pay and pensions. But I mean, what's your take on the, the pay constraints, opportunities, how much of a problem it is and what the solutions might be? So I think there's a, I think there's a number of things here and, and Giesler and Catherine have talked about some of them already, which is the civil service is operating in multiple labour markets, right? So we are principally talking here about relatively senior civil servants. We're talking predominantly I think about those who work in policy space, although some of them who are sort of leading big operations. I, I don't think we're talking principally here about you know, civil servants who are working in kind of mass delivery organisations. Um, but, but the different labour market segments are important and, and pay is different for, for each one of those. I think certainly it's true, as, as, as Jordan's report shows, at sort of SCS level or even kind of just a couple below that, pay has fallen below median and it's fallen below private sector. Um, and that is important. And you see this across the wider public sector. And, and oftentimes in the public sector, you get this sort of 
sort of self-denying ordinance, almost kind of flagellation. It's like, how dare you, in, you know, imply that I'm incentivized by pay? I want to be, you know, extrinsically motivated, intrinsically motivated to do all these wonderful things. And it's like, well, it's both and. And, and you can see this empirically, whether it's in the health sector or in education or in the wider public sector, when relative pay goes up, more people apply for those jobs. When the economy relatively goes down and public sector looks relatively attractive, more people go into it. It is an iron rule of public sector workforces that as the relative economic weight increases, more people and more talented people, however defined, go in. So of course people are motivated by other things, but they're also motivated by a base level of pay. Um, and at the moment, given that relative pay is decreasing, it's not a surprise that, relatively speaking, fewer people want to go in. I think there's another couple of things I would observe. And again, I think Catherine said this, that the business of how government works is a skill set. Again, my background is predominantly education. You can't move for the amount of people in education that are very, very rude about the Department of Education, very, very rude about how government works, very, very rude about, I just don't understand why they don't do X and Y and Z. And the honest answer is that sometimes they are trying to do X, Y and Z, but it's much harder than you think. And sometimes it's because your idea of X, Y and Z is actually a really bad idea. Um, obviously, in my job, given that they're my clients, I never tell them that. Um, gently steer them towards perhaps, you know, writing read letters to ministers might not be an effective way of getting what you want. But it is, a, you know, the ability to do policy or to do operations or to do any of the things that even generalist civil servants do is very valuable, has a huge labour market, which is why commercial areas are full of people who've worked in government, because those skill sets are very, very important. So I do think it does need to be valued, because the ability to advise, the ability to write, the ability to operationalise, the ability to implement, the ability to give legal advice or statistical advice or actuarial advice in the medium of national and local policy making is difficult and it does require a skill set and the civil service is very good at training people for that skill set and those do have a value and then i guess the last point i would make and again it speaks to the point that that Giesler made is it's it's pay as a baseline it's pay and if you look at all the areas and all the, the, the work that sort of management school research would say makes a good job the civil service and particularly the senior civil service ought to be quite good at doing some of these it ought to be a market leader in flexible working there's absolutely no reason why the civil service writ large and certainly at the more senior levels shouldn't be an absolute leader uh, in flexible working it absolutely should offer the chance to kind of do good to have a sense of worth to be, sort of not be just you know making widgets it ought to be operating with a relatively large degree of autonomy subject of course to ministerial priorities these are things which could and should be massive attributes to the civil service but they're either not part of it or they're a hidden part of it so if you are thinking about going in Oftentimes you do get this kind of, oh, it's horrendously bureaucratic, you can't make any decisions. I mean, sometimes that is true, but sometimes it's not true, and the civil service needs to talk about what it offers that is not just pay. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, a few other things to sort of inject to the conversation, and then I'll come to questions and, um, uh, in the room and online, and uh, lots coming in already, so do keep them coming in uh, uh, online. Um, uh, ACOBA. And the revolving door. Uh, welcome to the ACOBA party, everyone. Uh, we've been here some time, but... There are a few more, a few more joiners recently. I, I don't want to get too far on into the kind of Sue Gray issue. There have been plenty of contributions about that, including from, uh, from us. Um, but the, the revolving door critique does sit around this debate and how, uh, you know, the appropriate ethical safeguards, um, but also a system that doesn't disincentivise people to come into, mm -hmm. the, um, into the civil service. We've been pretty critical of ACOBA um, in, the, in, this, in this report, um, suggested different models for um, managing conflicts of interest. But maybe, Gisela, do you want to start with the, well, the, I, the Commission's sense on ACOBA? Because the Commission is sort of, you know, we regulate the entry into it. Uh, and my, my key observation I would make is that you, you cannot have transparency uh, and, and uh, porosity if you don't regulate the process in as well as the process out, and the, the rules have to be predictable, and they have to be predictable at the outset. So, uh, I mean, there's a question to be had about whether it, these things need to be separate, but uh, I'd be really interested about Catherine, because mm. my experience is, actually, it's, easy to get, it's easier to get people in yes. than to bring them back in. I'm sure yeah. that's... And I just I, wonder... I, I, certainly, I, I think, think that's, that's something true. I'd be really so I think, interested I think to bringing people, I think bringing people back in is hard, and I think that's partly because I think a lot of it is financial. Um, I will just say a little bit about ACOBA, though, mm. if you don't mind, yeah, because I um, am sub currently uh, subject to the COBA guidance, um, having left the Treasury to go to a bank, as you'd expect. And um, 
uh, I am banned from lobbying the Treasury for two years um, after a date that was set that was to do with my departure, which is perfectly sensible, actually um, quite a relief for me. I think it makes it much easier if you go into an executive environment, if it's totally clear that the expectation is not that you're somehow doing loads of deals for your new employer um, or, you know, in some kind of awkward relationship with people that you very recently worked with. So I haven't found it irksome at all, expected it entirely and have observed it religiously. Um, the process for my departure and that ACOBA process was leaked on multiple occasions and uh, was covered in the sort of context of it being corrupt for somebody to move from a policy-making function into a corporate environment. And that, to me, spoke to a sort of general, in the discourse, a sort of general contempt for public service and mistrust of public servants that I think is very off-putting for people who might want to think about whether it's part of their career. Um, and, I, you know, I just think that there needs to be more clarity and professionalism around how those rules operate and it needs to be clearer that they operate the same for absolutely everybody, not differently for a, you know, a bureaucrat that nobody's heard of like me than it might be for somebody else. Um, and I think that that goes to trust, which is absolutely central to the effective operation of a civil service, which is there to make the constitution work. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll stop ranting. Leave it there. <laughs> do, do, do you mind if just sort of yeah. follow? Because, yeah, I mean, this may also be the, ch the, the, the opportunity to talk something about impartiality. And, yeah. you know, the, the, the civil service is not independent and it must be relevant, but it must be impartial. Yeah. So, of course, it must make decisions. It, 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 it will have, people will have their personal views, but they, they will have that engagement. And, you know, nobody will question amongst lawyers, you know, and, and once upon a time I, I was one. Uh, it's part of their professionalism to pick up a brief and do the, the, the best job to their ability. And nobody questions that that is what they, they can do. Mm. And I think we ought to show a bit more respect and awareness of that the, the impartiality is part of the professional skill set. Mm. Uh, and that, you know, just, just look at when, when government makes big policy changes, uh, brown energy or all those kind of things, you know, you, you may... You may reflect like the, the client of saying, would I have done that? Probably not. However, that's the direction we are going. And that is the, the, the authority uh, of what you do. But the, the balance, which I don't think we are striking right yet, and if you make international comparisons, uh, I think the, the interchange between the corporate sector and government uh, is much more active. It is much more seen as part being part of doing the best for your country. But you're much clearer at the outset of the rules under which you've joined and the rules under which you will leave. Yeah. And there, shall not, there, there can't be rules which will amount to constraint of trade. Yeah. Yeah. And it's that yeah. predictability which we haven't right, got, which is the problem. We're, we're, sorry, without wishing to bang about this. I think the thing about ACOBA is because it's guidance, it's not. It's therefore obviously not binding, so I could have ignored it. Yeah. Like all public servants, I feel that my reputation is basically what I have, and therefore I have no incentive at all to go against it. But ACOBA could have made it a requirement that I, were, I had a two-year wait period before I joined Barclays with no pay. And I think if you, want to, if you want people to be going in and out, they need to know the terms on which, I mean, not many people can, could have done that. Um, people need to know the terms on which they would be coming out as well as the terms on which they're coming in so that they understand they can do career planning. It's, it's no more complex than that, really. I don't yes, think I anybody argues yeah. that. I think just, just to follow up on that, and again, I think Jordan talks about it in the report, there are, there are a large group of people who only ever want to go in for a time-limited role as sort of experts, and particularly those who've got an academic background or mm. who particularly want to go in to work on a, a particular area. And for them, as you say, Catherine, the, the brand is absolutely key to them. If, you know, if you're Professor Smith and you know, you've spent a bit of time in academia and you want to go in and help government, I think the report is right that a lot of those people are worried that either their advice will get ignored or they will be seen as kind of tarred with the decisions mm. that government has made. So I do think there has to be some way of, of, as well as there being transparency about who goes in and out, a recognition that, you know, your advice is to, to not be impartial. Your advice is to kind of 
speak truth to power, but then have, you know, government makes the decisions of the day and you help implement them. So there has to be a recognition that senior civil servants, whether they are specialists or whether they've come in on secondment or whether they were, you know, head of the propriety and ethics team, have worked on a kind of an independent, impartial basis, and that was their job. And as Gisela said, it's just like being a lawyer or being a management consultant or being in any other professional services. You give advice, but you also represent your client's interest. And when your client is government, you do that as well. Yeah. This predictability point came out really strongly in our research, didn't it, uh, Yeah, absolutely. And, and sort of just to bookend this about Akbar, I mean, it's, it's sort of the worst of all words, worlds right now even, where um, you have bad actors who, as, as Catherine says, it's advisory and so are therefore able to basically ignore it without punishment. And then you have good people who kind of take these quite often blanket bans on them working for a period of time, quite often without pay, which can be really difficult for them personally. And I think what we recommend in the report, and one thing that, that came out really clearly is something... Um, near where the Boardman review landed, which was this idea of restrictive covenants in, in contracts and making it very clear at the beginning of your time in the civil service and what the restrictions will be at the end of your time in the civil service. And that way people can plan ahead. That way people have the predictability that Gisela was talking about. Um, it seems to us to just be a much more sensible system. You say Akaba, I say Akoba. Let's, <laughs> let's call the whole thing no, off. No agreement. Um, uh, no, uh, uh, we'll come to questions, as I say, in a second. One point... Um, one point that was occurring to, uh, occurred to me as we were doing this work, and it touches on the generalist specialist point, it touches on the career routes point that Jordan was talking about, is how you bring in more external specialists, bring in people with different experiences, great. How do you do that in a way that doesn't uh, increase or amplify the already existing fragmentation between policy and delivery? So one of the risks, I think, of bringing bringing people in is that you bring them into sort of think great thoughts in the treasury or um, uh, or in a uh, in another department but that they remain disconnected from the, uh, uh, the the policy delivery machine that is actually going to change things and they become okay disruptors great thinkers challengers fantastic but they're not actually kind of connected to the to the levers so I mean if anyone has a thought about I mean, just Jordan, to, Jonathan, I can see yeah so that's that. that I mean it, it speaks to the difficulty that external recruits can have inside the civil service of, of kind of contributing to the machine and, and actually kind of playing a full part, essentially, because I, I think that is something that, in our research anyway, came out as, as really difficult. And part of it links to really basic stuff. So, like, you know, it's onboarding is terrible. People don't get their laptops and their security passes until week five. I mean, that's, you know not a, a well-run kind of system and it doesn't make you feel valued. Part of it is to do with inductions. Now, it's great that the, the skills and curriculum unit have launched a six-hour online induction. We think that's a massive step forward because prior to that, there were practically no formal inductions unless departments kind of took it upon themselves to do it. In many cases, they didn't. Um, but we think that, that there's absolutely scope to go further. So, I mean, just to kind of to amplify Alex's point, I think, I think the other point to make is how do you stop external recruits becoming, becoming almost isolated within the civil service and, and finding it very difficult to act and finding they don't have the networks that internal recruits have um, to draw upon, which, as we know, kind of everyone on, on this panel is a very important way to get things done in the civil services, to build kind of coalitions behind ideas. Um, I wonder what kind of Gisela and, and Jonathan yeah. have. I mean, Jonathan, do you, on that sort of link to delivery point, is that bringing in more people from local authorities as well, or you know, better embedding them in the system? I, I, I think it's about... You know, normally when the specialist comes in, either they've got a very, very specialist skill, they know how to do PFI or they know how to do something and, and you just can't get these people and they come in internally and they have a, you know, very, very important role, normally pretty directly linked to ministers. They're normally on sort of separate pay scales and Treasury is very good at bringing in those type of specialists as well. Um, but it's absolutely critical. And I think this is the role of the permanent secretary is that if you have got a kind of disruptive thinker and he or she is, he or she is saying... You know, here's a great idea for how we do this differently, do this differently, do this differently. If ministers have decided that is what they want to do, then it is the responsibility of the permanent secretary and the department, and indeed that, you know, revolutionary thinker themselves, to actually think about how you deliver it. Because opinions are ten a penny, right? And kind of brilliant ideas are ten a penny. And sometimes they're brilliant ideas and sometimes they're stupid ideas that have been discounted rightly nine times before. But if you genuinely think as a department that you want to bring in thinker X, it is part of your responsibility to help you know, ministers who've ultimately signed off on Thinker X, Thinker X's work to get done. And if it can't get done, I think that is a failure of the civil service. It might be that it's just a bad idea, but a lot of civil service bad ideas are bad ideas, but you still have to try and do them. Um, I think that the disconnect comes because people think that, you know, you've come up with a good idea, you've written it as a submission, you've gone for a meeting with the Secretary of State, the Secretary of State's announced it in a speech, job done, you move on to your next thinking, right? That classic policy delivery disconnect. There's a risk that kind of external people make that worse, and therefore it's... it's doubly important that you have that kind of delivery chain working all the way through. Brother, you want to come in on that? Gisela. 
I mean, what you open up is, is, is a really big, big issue, which is what's different with government and, and, and companies? You know, how many FTSE 100 companies are older than 100 years? Uh, you know, companies fail, they go to the wall. Governments don't. Uh, they, they continue to exist. So that's one, one constraint. The second one is government is, you know, information about the future is a bit scarce, and human beings have a habit of not always reacting the way you want. So therefore, democracy, which is what this is about, is a trial and error system. And therefore, there is never, there's rarely an idea which in itself is absolutely right or wrong. Mm -hmm. Open brackets. But we've had, in the last six months, a prime minister being removed by the markets, which is actually quite remarkable, close, close, close brackets. Which then sort of takes you to, how, how should we organize this? And, and I want to draw two analogies. One is, if you work in the charity commission, they will say a, a properly run charity means you know, trustees should be, ne should be there for three years, probably renew for another three years, but you definitely don't leave them more than 10 years. So every other organization out there recognizes that movement is important for renewal. However, at the same time, if you look at the average time civil servants spend in a role and you compare how long they would spend the role in the private sector, I think the civil service moves internally yeah. too often and too much. So you've got this weird tension between, on the one hand, not moving enough and on another level too much. And then why do you bring in the outsider? It's either because they bring in a skill which is so specialist, responding to a particular situation that you can't have it. You may want to bring it in because you realize you need to build capacity on something that's newly emerging and you haven't got it enough, you need to build on that. So, so the real point is, ask yourself why you want external. Uh, so local authorities, I want the external because UK PLC's governance will not work, work well if the, if, 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 if the regions aren't as run as well as the centre. So that must be the starting point. Why are they coming in? Mm -hmm. So I think, it's a, I think coming back to that point about what is the gap you're trying to fill is the critical one about the success of external recruitment. Because if you're bringing somebody in either because they have a specialism or skills that you lack or they understand an environment that the department doesn't understand very well and in which it needs to have impact, then that is additive and is very useful. And then it's the responsibility of the department and the permanent secretary to ensure that that capability is used. If somebody is being brought in to disrupt as a sort of sub substitutive act for um, there being irritation about the quality of what you're getting from your civil servants, then that's much less likely to work because you'll get exactly the problem described, which is yet another set of ideas that are completely untethered to the reality of their delivery. And it comes back to the point that running a government is a specialist skill set. Um, and uh, you don't, you, there is not substitutability, for example, between being permanent secretary of a Whitehall department and the CFO of a major corporate. They are not equivalent, remotely equivalent jobs. They're completely different. So you've got to be totally clear what the gap is that you're trying to fill, I think. Thanks, Catherine. Right, questions. I will come first to the room, those who've braved the snow and the cold to uh, be here. So we've got a roving mic, and if you could just uh, stick your hand up and then say who you are and where you're from. We'll come to the front here first, please. The lady in the red. Hello. Um, uh, my name's Ella Millward-Hamilton, and I'm currently working at Milestone Research. But for the last decade, I have been bringing people in from the private sector to public sector, NHS, um, local government and central government to SES1 and SES2, a couple of times at, at G6 and G7. I suppose my question is, you've all mentioned about the need for government to sell, but I'm talking from that external candidate perspective. So I'd say 85% of people that I've brought in have taken a big pay cut. And the diversity element, we have to stick to diversity rules. We can't have a short list of five white men. So there is an element of diversity, and the money is less important at SES 1 and 2. At SES, uh, sorry, at 6 and 7, though, you brought up all these points, and I suppose my question is, are you going to make these changes in, one, better career paths, because people who are taking a pay cut at six and seven want to move for the security. They want to think there is a career path, and we have found time and time again that when we've spoken to them a year, two years later, that they are saying, well, I wanted to move to a different department, but I was told I'm too much in, I don't know, DFT mindset, so I'm never going to be able to go to DWP, and yet they'd be happy to take someone externally into DWP. And so 
that is getting out in the market and people saying, I, I don't want to move for a pay cut if I'm not going to have that security. And then at SES 1 and Thank 2, how realistic Quite is it? Time. Sorry, how realistic is it that you are going to be able to sell better? Because we've had candidates, CFOs of FTSE businesses, CTOs, CDOs, um, who are messed around for months and months on end. And so then they and their large networks turn off from, from central government. So, yeah. Thank you. I'll take a few questions at once, and I suspect uh, the word vetting will come up in the answer. <laughs> Second point, but I'll do that. I think there was a question uh, just over here. Thank you. Uh, my name is Nick Elliott from Wonderwork. Um, I just had a point. We work in a lot of strategy projects, particularly with the German public sector. Um, and a few weeks ago, we were having a conversation with them. And you know, you'll find in the German public sector that a lot of senior civil servants will be doctor, doctor, PhD holders. Um, and so and on the, in this conversation, what they said is actually in a, across a lot of German departments, they, they don't actually look for public, uh, private sector um, recruits because they find, you know, actually, why don't we look to senior academics, people with PhDs, because firstly, they're less intrinsically motivated by pay. They're experienced in transferring their skills to other people because they've lectured and et cetera. Um, and also, I think that they find that you know, these people, uh, they, uh, especially in the German Bundesbank, for example, is a, a great example, um, these people are intrinsically interested in bringing their skills into that role. They're interested in sharing those skills within the department, um, and they're less interested in, 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 financial, uh, in fi financial gains. So I wonder whether there's any thoughts on maybe a, a better strategy to recruit people from academia um, as, a, as opposed to focusing just on the private sector. Um, and last point I'd say is that if you look to South Korea, for example, I think it's something like 30% of their entire civil service um, are PhD holders. And, you know, I'm not saying that's the right thing, but maybe that's something to think about. Um, yeah. Thank you very much. One more, if there's someone else in the room. There's a gentleman uh, sort of middle back there. Thank you. I'm, I'm a Aaron Errol. I, I am a civil servant. Um, I was a fast stream assessor for 15 years, so I know a bit about that. Um, there was a social mobility report, a uh, social mobility commission report a couple of years ago called Navigating the Labyrinth. Mm. Um, and I, I also note that the senior civil service comprise something like 1.4% 1, 1 of the total half a million. So my question is, um, is there a risk of fishing in a slightly bigger pool as opposed to, or compared to more pools? As compared to, sorry, I missed that one. The, the, the report was about, uh, it's called Navigating the Labyrinth, and it was about how social economic background shapes your career progression. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, really interesting report, if anyone has not read it. I've recommended it from this platform before, I think. Um, so, uh, career paths for grade sixes and sevens in particular, but also others. Uh, how realistic is it to sell better? Um, people coming in from academia, comparisons to Germany and South Korea, and then fishing in the, um, uh, the, the bigger pool of uh, social mobility. So, Giesler, do you want to kick us off on any of those? Um, uh, Ella, now, um, the, the com you know, Commission can support the HR function and the career paths and the plannings, and we, that's why we try and encourage them to actually be quite innovative. But essentially, uh, we have lots of conversation with the new Chief People's Officer, the, the difficulty is that the, the fragment, that the civil service is not a single employer, and therefore you've got a, a real fragmentation. What some departments do really well, uh, others do it less well. You've got um, talent planning across the DG and PermSec level across Whitehall, but not lower down. And one of the things which I would really like to encourage people is, is a much greater focus on that feeder pipeline and that rather than you just managing your own career, that there's some kind of support which goes across Whitehall. Uh, and that's why systems always go from you know, one extreme, that's a central control, to, to no controls at all, uh, which leads me to, to the German model, uh, and we could be here all day. <laughs> they are different, let me tell you, as a German, they are different. However, <laughs> the, the, whole, the whole approach to uh, respect of academic qualifications, which can be very restrictive, you know, my career in this country after 49 years, I could not have done in Germany because in Germany, for every time to unlock a door, I would have required a piece of paper. Mm. Here, 
they would open the door because they had alternatives to that single piece of paper. So, you know, it, it, it's kind of horses for courses. Scotland, interestingly, though, when I talked to the Scottish government and I said, uh, where do you get a lot of your external goods? is from academia. Um, so so it's in, in, in certain sectors, uh, I, I think you're right. And I would want more, more exchange because it also benefits academia. So, for example, I, one of the reasons why I think the, the hub in Darlington will work well is because the whole Darlington uh, structure is also engaging with the local environment and with local teaching institutions. And that's where the civil service and that's where government should work much more closely. And you know, and Aaron, you're breaking my heart because that uh, that, that that report uh, and the one which we haven't reported is actually mentioned by name in the Baxendale report. Mm. You know, you get these things where you say it's not that we don't know what the problem is, and we have some beautiful reports. And you go back in the case of Baxendale ten years later, and this one slightly fewer years, and you go and say, and what has changed? And I. And not much, and that's why I think, in, in, in terms of the civil service commission, I sort of my, my my mission is to kick doors open in such a way that it will become very difficult to to close them again. And and one of the things which we sort of found when you want proper diversity in terms of thought and backgrounds and things is actually group group recruitment. And I use as the example, you know, Barbara Castle became the MP for Blackburn. Because at that stage, you had two members of parliament. And the good people of Blackburn decided, oh, we've already got a man, so we might have to take a risk with a woman. Uh, and this, this story is repeated over and over again. If you only do one and very narrow, people will go with a known and with a safe and not feel comfortable with opening doors. But that's what we've got to do. Thanks, Kiesling. Catherine, do you want to maybe pick up the point about sort of selling better? And uh, what's your take on that? Yeah, so. Um, I mean, I, it's, it's really interesting listening to this discussion because my only expertise is as somebody who's been a civil servant and been a leader in the civil service. I've not done research into it, and I don't run a I don't run a capability that, that looks across recruitment. My experience as a as a hiring manager in the civil service is that, you know, if we're talking about specialisms where uh, we might want to invest. The civil service has massively disinvested from those sort of core skills that you use to run an organisation like HR, like finance. Mm. Um, and that, you know, when, when you're trying to cut costs, then sometimes these central functions are the ones uh, are the ones where you've lost out. And that can really have an impact on your ability to recruit at pace. Um, we, you mentioned vetting. Everybody knows that vetting is taking a long time. And that is an additional that's an additional challenge. So. Um, and I, I know that those recruitment processes are, you know, can be very trying for people on the other end of them who aren't used to working that way. Where I work, people complain about how long it takes to hire people. They should try doing it in the civil service. <laughs> um, I, 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 I smile at, at your remarks about the German civil service. And as a civil servant, I worked a lot with counterparts all over Europe and certainly where the French and German counterparts were concerned, they, they always looked with complete bafflement at the UK approach because they couldn't understand a model where you weren't, you didn't have an academic training to be a civil servant. You did have an academic training very frequently, but you weren't a lawyer and you weren't an economist. You hadn't been through, you know, Sciences Po or whatever it was. And they, they found that, they found it peculiar to see that we didn't have that approach. And yet we had a, what was regarded as a very high performing civil service. I think it is that diversity of capability. But to your point, I think the Labyrinth report, was that the Velvet Drainpipe report? Yeah. Uh, uh, the yeah. Treasury came yes. off particularly yeah. badly. And the Foreign Office. In that report, yeah. and the Foreign Office. Um, and there is certainly something in there about, you know, that was, we asked ourselves a lot of searching questions, quite rightly, at the Treasury about why we were the way we were. And I think Darlington is, is a really important step forward because it will disrupt... Uh, a sort of one horse guards culture at the Treasury. Uh, uh, that sounds like a disloyal thing to say, but it isn't because I think it's what the senior leadership of the Treasury want. Um, you, it means that we will be recruiting people from with a very different life experience than a lot of the people who work in one horse guards, and that will make it a much more effective department. Mm -hmm. oh, that report certainly made me think quite a lot about my, you know, my career in some sense. But Jonathan, just to, to slightly dissent on the academic mm -hmm. rigour, so I, I think that it goes back to my point about, about specialism and professional training. And I think the civil service in the UK is at its best 
when people are professionally trained. But I think that is best off done in the civil service. Mm. My worry about academics, and particularly people who hold PhDs, and some of my best friends have wasted years of their life doing PhDs. <laughs> um, by the time you have done a PhD, you are very, very committed to your discipline, and you are a very academic mindset, okay, with a big A and a small A, whether you are a serving postdoc or not. Oftentimes, that translates very, very badly to government because government, by definition, works on impartial information. It works, relatively speaking, at pace. It is motivated by things other than what the academic evidence says. And all of those are good things for governments to do. But academics, in my experience, find that incredibly trying because oftentimes there is not one right answer or government does something which the academic evidence might say you go a different way. But that is the role and function and right of government. And in my experience, I've seen a lot of academics really struggle with government because they don't understand the different ways in which they operate and the different incentives that they are driven by. You can have very, very good academics that understand how to speak like policymakers, that understand the constraints that policymakers work within, and they tend to be fated, and they tend to be used all the times, and they turn up on expert groups, and they come in and comments, and they, they do all sorts of things. But the vast majority of academics, I'm afraid, in my instance, for better or worse, are fundamentally, it's a dialogue of death with government, and... Um, I would not want lots of them in the government. If I could, if I could <laughs> make an additional, uh, additional point there, I think in the early period of COVID, you saw exactly that culture clash between a scientific establishment that was finally at the centre of policymaking and the difficulty mm. in the, mm. of those two um, sort of dialectics to engage. Also, if you want to, if you want socially, if you want a socially diverse civil service, you can't just take a load of people with two ones from universities. You just can't. Yeah. And one of the things we did at the Treasury was to really expand the use of apprenticeships because it means that you've got very different. You you weren't getting a particular set of academic skills. You're getting really smart people with a different mindset and a different life experience. So I think I think the mixture is critical. I'm going to start firing some questions from uh, online at people, starting with uh, Jordan. There's the the most popular one is from uh, Graham Pendlebury. Uh, Nothing more demoralising from civil servants than external recruits on much higher salaries who are then rarely seen when a crisis emerges. Discuss. Um, uh, are, are you proposing big pay increases for existing civil servants or just, exist, or just external recruits? Yeah, I, I, so I think one thing to note is that, as the question says already, we are seeing that external recruits tend to come into the civil service on higher salaries than internal recruits, and that can cause some resentment. And there was something recently that, that my colleague Jill Rutter flagged to me, which was that I think it was the chief executive of the Competition and Markets Authority. Uh, it was 125,000 salary per annum for um, an internal candidate or 195,000 for an external Internal candidate, which you know, I can imagine strikes many civil servants as unfair, quite rightly. Um, I think it partly reflects the the fact that if you're a civil servant already, you have shown a willingness to work in the civil service at a rate well below market level, whereas um, as an external candidate, you haven't. But to answer the question, yes, I, I think we would say that that it is important to also kind of give give pay rises to to existing civil servants, particularly at senior levels for retention, and at junior levels, there are all kinds of pressures for the cost of living. So when we talk about pay rises, at least from the Institute for Government perspective, we are also talking about kind of internal um, civil servants, existing civil servants, because we think there's also a strong case from a kind of retention perspective um, and morale to, to do that. And this flexibility point as well that we've talked about. Um, and Catherine, a question from our own Tim Durrant. Lots of reports of civil servants leaving in recent years. What can the government do to encourage those who've left to go back in and support regular movement back and forth? So we've, we've touched on this a yeah. little bit, but I mean, you, you're perfectly placed to <laughs> say what might incentivize someone who's left the civil service to come back in. There have been a lot, haven't there? And, and when Gisela said, you know, that um, permanent secretary roles have to be advertised externally, but she hasn't had any contacts. I thought, well, there have been such a lot of permanent secretaries who've left. Yeah. It's quite amazing to me um, that, that nobody's got in touch with you to ask about external recruitment, because goodness knows uh, there's been enough recruitment of permanent secretaries. I think, so what, one of the challenges is actually a structural one, that if the civil service is in a part of the cycle currently where it's actually shrinking at the top, um, because there was a significant expansion during Brexit and that was sustained during COVID. It's now getting smaller. So actually, you, you've got fewer jobs and you've got internal talent that you need to manage. So the first thing to say is, you know, there's, there's a capacity question. You might need skills, but broadly speaking, you have a lot of really good people who want, who want advancement within the structure. Um, so there needs to be space. Um, if you wanted to attract people back in, I think you need to be clear about what the what the career offer is. Are you getting back on that ladder and if so, up to what? Or are you coming in to do a particular role because it's important and if so, to whom? Because at that point you're talking about much more bespoke idiosyncratic recruitment. Um, and it's, you know, we are talking about a very few jobs compared to the very large number of broader Whitehall jobs that a lot of this discussion has been about. Mm. Also, 
the exit strategy. Yeah. Being a senior civil servant has not, you know, a lot of the discourse around the very senior civil service has been very negative in recent years. And so if you're an individual thinking about going back into that and going in front of select committees, you would need to be clear what you were being asked to do, that you would be valued, how long you would be there, what your exit strategy is, because otherwise, you know, you're, you're tangling with quite a lot of difficult things you're probably not experiencing in your... You'd be different than the difficulties you've got in your other job. We've also not talked about... Um, while the 91,000 job production target might have gone, budgets are still going to be incredibly tight. We'll see if anything happens on that in the forthcoming budget. But, I mean, this is not going to be a period of expansion, I suspect, for the civil service over the coming... Um, period. So, I mean, one question, I mean, Gisela, is how, how you think the civil service is equipped to still draw in talent while potentially shrinking? There was also one specific question from online here, um, from Anonymous. Uh, having applied recently... recently for an external process for an expert policy role within the civil service, I was shocked that no interview question tried to gauge my knowledge or expertise in that policy area. Mm. Can we measure this with behaviours? Again, it's another thing we've not touched on, this uh, quite sort of generic recruitment yeah. approach that doesn't really dig into specialisms, yeah. and there's more we can do on that. Interested in your take? Well, I mean, I think I said in, in opening remarks about, you know, open, fair and merit, and we try not to talk too much about merit. And, you know, I, I think I sort of ruffled a few feathers when I first became the first civil service commissioner and I looked at these questions and I go and said, surely the first question should be, why do you think you can do the job? <laughs> and you move on from, from there. Uh, and, and, and I can see why... Uh, where you've, where you've got a system where people come through the structure and therefore there's quite a lot known about them uh, into position. And that's where I think the external candidates are very often at a disadvantage because they, they're, they're unfamiliar with processes. And so the most obvious one is the staff engagement exercises. Most of the, the, the recruitments, you will do a staff engagement exercise with a group of people, and it, it, it'll be a, a brave panel that puts someone forward where seven members of the staff engagement exercise to the question of, do you think X would make a good leader? They go and say no. Uh, and you say, but I recommend that person to you. Uh, so we, we, we're kind of encouraging to sort of, you know, the, when external recruiters, uh, that they, they, they brief them, that they sort of show what it is. Um, there is a, a coaching and training of doing the process, and, and I, th I regard it as part of the, the, the Civil Services Commission's uh, a, a job to, to actually encourage that kind of different approach. And they are, you know, I, one thing which I, I really hope is that we look at different models, both at DG level but also at SS1, of whether the, the, the interview. Mm. is the right way of, 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 of recruiting. But do it still in a framework where you can actually assess that it is fair to everyone. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So, so there's, a, there's a lot to be done on there. But, but Catherine, the external by default, you see it's now to all the grades, down to deputy directors. And it was the absence of departments saying, now that the commission isn't chairing the panels, uh, at the moment you just chair to that level, but now you've gone one further down, what should we do? Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, because the, even just by the job descriptions, I mean, if you put in the job description an external advert which goes and says, experience working with ministers, no, you can't. <laughs> because, you know, how are you going to have experience with all qualifications? And they're sort of little things, or even just language which you don't explain. Uh, it's, it's that thing which is so important. Yeah. Action point for departments, phone up Gisela and yeah. her team and this stuff. On, on that sort of retrenchment point, Jonathan, I mean, there was a question here, really important point about retention. Our team in the Cabinet Office has a significant number of external joiners, but they don't stay due to pay, learning and development. How do we combat this with the restraint on civil service spending? What would, you, what would your advice be to the civil service? It's, it's really hard, isn't it? So, so I left the civil service in 2011 and, you know, have periodically thought about going back in. I enjoyed the civil service immensely and you know, still do quite a lot of work with, with the department, sort of advising on an informal basis. And, you know, people, I still know a lot of civil service, most people there are pretty miserable. And most people there are pretty miserable, for, I think, for a number of reasons. One is that they feel um, slightly dumped on by ministers, uh, which, we've, which we've talked about. And partly it's that, you know, there's a lot of kind of voluntary exits going on and other people are leaving and that sort of never gives you a sense that it's a sort of, you know, up-and-coming organisation. And part of it, and this is, this is sometimes accidentally or deliberately misinterpreted, when you are in a civil servant, almost by definition, you believe in the power of the state 
and you believe in the power of the state to do good. And the state doing good oftentimes, although not always, involves spending public money. And so when budgets for administration are small, and when budgets for programme and policy delivery are small, your ability to do stuff is small. And that's not much fun for people. Now, it's not said so that civil service is all left-wing. It's not said so that civil service all involves spending taxpayers' money without any due regard for balancing that. But that fundamentally, if your job involves not being able to exercise in an efficient way the power of the state, it's not much fun. <coughs> And so I think, not answering your question, but to, to really, I suppose, say that the challenge for retention in the next few years is not just going to be, you know, is it fun, is it enjoyable, can I get paid enough, but does my job allow me mm. to do the things which I think are worthwhile and important? Mm. And if it won't, and the honest truth is that most civil service jobs will do less over the next few years, that is not a particularly attractive environment to be in. That is a slightly downbeat, but um, good point, I suspect, to, uh, to end as the uh, clock ticks over to the end of our uh, hour. Uh, thank you uh, very much to uh, the panel for uh, what I found a really interesting discussion. Thank you to everyone uh, here uh, at the Institute and on the live stream. Uh, the live stream uh, will be available to watch on our web website and on uh, YouTube uh, over the course of the next day or so. A uh, few plugs for the report, as we've talked about, opening up. Uh, it's on our uh, website. Our next event here is tackling the UK's energy efficiency problem, which is on Tuesday the 14th of March at 11 o'clock. Um, there's a brilliant budget event coming up uh, on the 16th of March with Richard Hughes of the OBR. Uh, and I'm in conversation with um, Sir Patrick Valance, the uh, outgoing Chief Scientific Advisor, on the 24th of March. So plenty to look forward to. Uh, thank you again and see you then. <laughs>